John 19, we'll read from verse 23. John 19, we'll start in verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said one to another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was done to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. That's our reading this evening from John 19, 23, and 24. I'm going to focus for a few minutes this evening on the crucifixion clothes of Jesus. Focus for a few minutes on the crucifixion clothes of Jesus and what they say to us. What they say to us. I want you to notice here before we get into the bulk of our discussion that implied here is that there are four soldiers who have been put in charge of the crucifixion of Jesus. And to each of these soldiers was giving a part of the clothes of Jesus. Most likely, whatever he had on his head, number one. Whatever sandals he had on his feet, number two. His outer cloak, number three. His sash or belt, number four. And then there was one more left. So each of the Soldiers, four of them, got each of those items we just mentioned. And probably each of those items were of equal value. But for the fifth item, the inner garment, the tunic, which was all one piece, they couldn't divide it or else they would just ruin it. And so they cast lots for that. They, in a sense, they gambled for that last piece. And so, these, these crucifixion clothes of Jesus, then what do these clothes say to us? First, let it be suggested to us that they speak of humiliation. Humiliation. You see, thankfully, on the movies and pictures, we don't see this, but they completely disrobe Jesus as they did all crucified victims. They took all of his clothes off. And so there he is, up on the cross, completely, (coughs) completely naked. They did this on purpose in order to humiliate the victim, but also his family and his friends. And so the clothes of Jesus speak to us of his 
humiliation. And this is not the only thing they use. Can you think of another way here at the crucifixion time? Can you think of another way that they sought to humiliate Jesus? The king of the Jews on the cross. What else can you think of? Hmm? Crown of thorns and mocked him. Go back to John 19, verse 1. John 19, verse 1. Let's read just a minute or two there. John 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. It's interesting how that that is just stated and it's not expounded upon. But that is a severe beating, whipping. Verse 2, John 19, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to him, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And when the chief priest and the officer saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Now notice that they further humiliated him by placing this, this purple robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns. This is following the flogging, the whipping. And so this robe would have stuck to his skin, just like you have had small wounds, and they would bleed a little bit, and then your clothes would stick to it. And so imagine the fact that Jesus' back has been now flogged, Basically, the skin has been opened and the bone is now exposed. And so they put a purple robe over all that and twisted the crown of thorns on his head. And so these clothes speak to us of the humiliation that Jesus endured. Of course, he's doing this for us and we are extremely grateful. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews for just a second, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, Hebrews 12 and verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, despising the what? The shame. The shame. Don't ever forget about the shame that went with the cross. Jesus despised the shame. When you despise something, you think very little of it. You don't, you don't think much of it. In Jesus' mind, he said, 
bring on the shame because I'm going to think very little of that. He was able to look through that shame and understand the joy that he would be bringing to the world by the sacrifice of himself. So in a sense, he said, bring it on. Go back to Hebrews 6. Notice... Verse 6, if they then fall away, talking about people like us, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt or shame, crucifying him afresh and holding him up to a new type of contempt or shame. The first crucifixion of Jesus was full of shame, humiliation. If we fall away from Christ, that, in a sense, replays it all over again. It brings it up back all over again. It shows the contempt we have for the Lord. And it shows, again, that we don't really care about the shame that He endured for our salvation. In a sense, it's, it's taking all this that Jesus did for us and just throwing it right back in His face. And so notice here that the crucifixion clothes speak to us of Jesus' humiliation. Now, Run back with me, if you'd like to, to the book of Daniel, chapter 12. Something I think you'll appreciate. Daniel 12. Somehow or another, Daniel is able to, to open up and get a view of the ultimate judgment day that is to come. Daniel 12 and verse 2. Daniel 12 and verse 2. He says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to what? Some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now Jesus took on the humiliation, the shame, so that we wouldn't have to go to hell and experience this everlasting shame and contempt. He took the shame on himself so that we wouldn't have to endure it. And so how dare us turn our back on the one who died for us? So these, these crucifixion clothes, they speak to Jesus' humiliation. And yet, and yet, and yet, are we embarrassed ourselves to even speak of Him as we go about here and there? He put Himself out to an open shame, a spectacle for the whole world to see. And yet we're embarrassed to speak of Him beyond 
oftentimes beyond the doors of, of the church building. Let's go back now to John 19 and think about a second thing that these crucifixions close say to us. And it says to us that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, obviously. Here in John 19, these, this very occasion, this very, these very happenings are the fulfillment of Scripture, if you'll see it here. 19 verse 24, all this was done to fulfill the scripture which says, now where is this coming from? What, what psalm is this coming from? Is it 22? 22, 18, that's right, 22, 18. If you have center column references in your Bible, which is, which is a must to me if you're going to have a Bible, you'll follow your reference to the middle and it'll say Psalm 22 and verse 18. This is one of the hundreds of ways in which Jesus fulfilled Scripture. And this is evidence, one of the many evidences that He is the, the One, that He is the Messiah, that He is... Son of God. Look over with me, or just turn back a few pages in your Bible to John chapter 5. John 5. Jesus speaking of this very idea of, of uh, witnesses for him. He says, I, I don't bear witness of myself. Okay, that's verse 31 of John 5. If I bear witness alone, about myself, and my testimony is not deemed to be true. So he begins to list different witnesses in behalf of himself. There's a witness of John the Baptist. There's the witness of the Father himself who spoke from heaven. Okay. But also, there's the witness of Scripture. Notice here in John 5, 39. Well, let's just, let's just name them off since I've started it. There's the witness of John the Baptist. There's the witness of the Father speaking from heaven. There's the witness of the works that Jesus did, his miracles, John 5, 36. And also there's the witness of the scriptures, John 5 and 39. Notice, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. We mentioned this verse 40 Sunday. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. These Jews had the scriptures, and they should have been able easily to recognize that Jesus is fulfilling the various scriptures that they've had in their hands all their lives. But they refused to come to him. And then look on down to verse 46 and 47, John 5. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Other references there, Luke 24, 44 to 49, when Jesus said that he is the fulfillment of Scripture uh, there as well. So these clothes, these crucifixion clothes, speak to us about Jesus being the fulfillment of prophecy. Another assurance that he is the one that we need to be submitting to and following 
Let that sink deep. It just so happened on this day here in John 19, crucifixion day, it just so happened that these four soldiers were assigned that day crucifixion duties. It just so happened that day that they were assigned specifically to this man, to the case of Jesus of Nazareth. It just so happened that day that they had an impulse. They were in the mood to take the crucified victim's clothes and, and divide them out among themselves and even to gamble for this fifth piece. Now, these four unnamed Roman soldiers, they had no knowledge of Scripture. They were not Jewish they probably didn't even own a prod. They might have never even heard of the Jewish scriptures. They had no knowledge of scripture. They had no, no, no force, no mysterious force telling them to, to take these clothes and divide them out among themselves. That there was no disciple of Jesus coming up and whispering in these Romans uh, soldiers' ears saying, hey, be sure to divide the clothes. Nothing like that. In, in an unknowing way, unwittingly, they were part of sacred history and they didn't even know it. You see, the one who made us all, the one who could see the future, the one who can orchestrate events to his own purpose and liking, that is the one who was in charge here. It's an amazing thing. Don't just, I catch myself doing this, just kind of saying, yep, that's a fulfillment of Scripture. Stop and think about it. The, the amazing, um, the amazing accurate fulfillment down to the very details, it's just something to, to observe. So these clothes speak to us not only the humiliation of Jesus, but also the fact that he's fulfillment of Scripture. Why don't you think about this? Back um, under the Old Testament law, the, the Mosaic law, I should say, the law instructed that there would be, beginning with Aaron, a high priest. A high priest. And what was the high priest to do on the annual day of atonement, what was he to do? All right. So he would take that blood and offer it first for himself and then for all the people. And so this is um, explained to us, you know, if we wanted to do all the reading on it, from Exodus 28 and several chapters in Leviticus. One that comes to my mind is Leviticus 16. But all this is explained. But it also foreshadows the fact that Jesus would be our great high priest. Now what book of the New Testament really talks about Jesus being the great high priest? Yeah. Book of Hebrews. And so from beginning in Hebrews 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, Jesus is looked upon and focused upon and identified as the great high priest. Let's just turn your Bible right quick to 
to the book of Hebrews. We need him to be the great high priest because we're dependent upon his sacrifice, his shed blood in our behalf. So making your way over to the book of Hebrews. We'll just read Hebrews 4, just because of the limitation of time. Hebrews 4, verse, beginning in verse 14. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was in all points in every respect uh, tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And then from Hebrews 5, 1, and a great exercise would be just to run through the book of Hebrews and notice every time Jesus is mentioned as our great high priest, now, the reason I say this is that from Exodus 28, as it's talking about Aaron being appointed as first high priest, check myself here, yeah. Verse 39 of Exodus 28, talking about how Aaron ought to be dressed. And it is quite an elaborate decoration. But notice in verse 39, Exodus 28, you shall weave the coat in checker work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen. And you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. That suggests, along with some other historical references, that the great high priest or the high priest of the Old Testament time, like Jesus was wearing there at the cross, the high priest of Old Testament times also wore a tunic, okay, a long, seamless Undergarment, or undergarment that were stretched from the bottom of the neck down to the thighs or knee. So there it is, as you open up John 19. Jesus is foreshadowed from the Old Testament to the New Testament as being the great high priest. And this may just be incidental. But hardly anything here around the cross is incidental. Scripture is being fulfilled right and left. And it wouldn't surprise me at all that God is, is orchestrating the fact that on this day at least, Jesus would be wearing not only these four parts of garments, but he'd have on that seamless tunic underneath. It could suggest that as he is as he is in the process there on the cross, could suggest that, that he is beginning his work or his role as our ultimate priest. 
not bringing animal blood into the Holy of Holies, but with his own blood, Hebrews 9 mentions again and again, with his own blood, Jesus makes sanctification. He makes cleansing for our sins. And so it could very well be that these crucifixion clothes speak to us about the role of Jesus as our great high priest. No doubt he is our great high priest. But why wouldn't God, because it's in the plan of God, why wouldn't he, why wouldn't he uh, in a subtle way indicate to us, to the world, that Jesus is taking on this role right now, right in real time as the soldiers put him on the cross and then divide out his garments. And, and they don't, it just so happens that they don't tear up the tunic. Rather, to them, this is the most valuable piece, and so they're going to cast lots for this piece. John goes out of his way to point out to us that this is how it occurs. It seems to me that he's taking this time to point it out that we need to think about the symbolism that's involved. All right. Next idea here is that these crucifixion clothes also speak to us about the poverty of Jesus. Poverty. You ever heard somebody say he'll give you the clothes off his back? Did Jesus own anything else? Think about it a minute. Is there anything else that Jesus owned as far as this life goes other than what he has on here before they take off his clothes, does he have any other position? What do you think? Does he own anything else of this world's goods? You know, he once said in Luke 9, 57, 58, the foxes have the holes and the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. Jesus didn't own a home. Anything else he has? We sing the song, Jesus gave it all. All to him I owe. He's given it all. Even the clothes off his back. Seems to me, can you think of anything else he owned? I'm asking he owned everything in a sense. That's right, Mike. Well, as far as a human being goes, anything come to your mind, Brother Roger? The clothes on his back. This is what he owned. This is, this is the only thing that's his. And they take them off. And he gives that up for us just like he does everything else. But isn't it amazing that God took what little Jesus has in this world's goods and turned it into something enormous, something eternal. Who else can do that but the Almighty? This speaks to us of the poverty of Jesus, but also these crucifixion clothes, to me, seems to speak to us of the purity of Jesus. In contrast here, just think about it, in contrast, here are these Roman soldiers some of the roughest characters that you'd, you would ever run into in that day because 
the job just kind of dictates the kind of person. Oftentimes the job you take dictates the kind of person you are. Okay. So here they are, they're Roman soldiers, they're involved in crucifixions, and they are, they are of a rough character. But look at the contrast of the one up there on the cross. His character and his claims. Little did these Roman soldiers know of the tremendous, perfect character of the clothes that they are, of the one of whose clothes they're dividing out. And they certainly didn't know about the claims he was making, claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to bring to the earth God's love, God's grace. He's the fulfillment of Scripture. Look at the stark contrast. Perhaps this is why John is recording this in such detail. He wants us to see how Jesus shines. Shine, Jesus, shine. Look how he shines in contrast to what these soldiers are doing. The purity of Jesus. We just read there in Hebrews 4.15. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet completely without sin. 1 Peter 2.22, he did no sin, Jesus, he did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. If ever you're going to sin, it's going to be with your tongue, probably. True of every one of us. Yet Jesus didn't even sin with his tongue. No guile found in his mouth. Oh, these crucifixion clothes, what did they say to you? They say several things about Jesus, don't they? His humiliation, his fulfillment of prophecy, his role as high priest, his perfect character, his poverty yet not, greatest man ever lived, yet look what he accomplished. We can't, we can't breathe a word about accomplishing anything without talking about raising money. And yet, the very Son of God came to this earth and accomplished the best thing ever. And he had very little of this world's goods. So these crucifixion clothes say a lot about Jesus, but they also say a lot about man, don't they? They say a lot about man. Here are these soldiers. Here are these soldiers. Look at them. Look at them. So close, yet so far away. So close to heaven's gift, and yet how far, far away they are. That's, that's the vanity of man. Right there, that is played over and over and over and over again in this old world, even in our neck of the woods, even in the church, how close we are to the one who loves us, and yet sometimes how far away we are. Think about the older brother and the prodigal son story, the father there and the prodigal son story represents God and Two brothers represent us. Well, one, one brother, of course, went far away from God because he wanted to enjoy riotous living. But the older brother still, even though he was close, he was far away from, from
from the Spirit of the Father, from the mind set on the Father. So close yet so far away. Somewhere in Paul's sermon in Athens in Acts 17, he says that God is not far from every one of us. Even to, even to those, those idolaters in Athens, God's not that far. Just a got to change your mind. Just a simple change your mindset and then you're on your road to discovering the Lord. That's the vanity of man is that he is so close. Look at our Bibles. Look at our Bibles. The Bible's everywhere. We've got Bibles everywhere in this building. You've probably got Bibles at home. Think about how many times have we passed that Bible. So close, it's so far away. Think about the vanity of man in that sense, but also think about the vanity of man in the sense that he's playing games. Here these soldiers are. Here these soldiers are playing with themselves. Gambling, I guess, playing, doing their little business. And yet all the while, all the while, God is accomplishing something huge. But they're not part of it. These soldiers are not part of it. They're too busy playing. They're too busy amusing themselves. Doesn't that speak right to, right to us, right to our society? Oh, how careful we must be that we don't become like these soldiers, living to amuse ourselves all the while God is wanting to do something huge with the soul, with, with people's souls. He wants to do something huge within us. We see so little, and yet God sees it all at once. So notice the, the vanity of man here. We've got to be careful, even within our activities at church, that we're not seeking to amuse ourselves to the point of forgetting that God has something big that He wants to be done. He has, he has important things concerning the soul that must be done. Well, that's my response, and you can respond now. That's my response to the to the crucifixion clothes of Jesus. To me, it's fascinating to think about what God is trying to say to us in these historical events. What is your response to these clothes? Yeah. And then the uh, there at the cross, like you say, they, they divide 
What Larry's saying, he's saying that after they flogged him, they put his clothes back on him in order to drag the cross, which he fell underneath that load or fell, had to have help with it. And so by the time he would get out to Golgotha, certainly those clothes would be soaked with the blood because of the, the tremendous bleeding he already would have taken place. And so, yeah, the clothes speak to us of the saving blood of, of Jesus. It's a good point there. Appreciate that. And remember, a lot of the crucifixion victims would die from the, the whipping. A lot of them would die. Uh, Jesus was not going to do this because uh, it's prophesied that he would be crucified. But... Very good point. What else might you say? What else? How we look at the simple things around us. Like you said, the soldier, no way, just another day. From God's point of view, this day is salvation. Sometimes we sell people too strong. Oh, well, they're not important. They don't mean anything. In fact, they can't even help me if I get around them. God looks at everybody and says, we're all slaves or lost. We're struggling. And we all in need of him. So it's how Mike Nix used to tell us, oh, look at all these great lights, you know, in the cities of Jerusalem, I mean, uh, New York and stuff. How he views everything. Yeah. Certainly true. Mike was saying one thing here. He said, to the soldiers, it was just another day. What, what was happening on the cross it meant absolutely nothing to them, but it meant a lot to God. Who else has got a comment? Yeah, that's another good point. Miss Susan saying, we gain robes of white. Revelation 7, 13, and 14. Our robes are washed in the blood of the Lamb, so our robes are white. That's an excellent, excellent observation as well. <laughs> yeah. How are you white in blood? It's a good thought. Yeah, he's he's at really 33. Rogers saying 33. He's he's in top condition. I mean, this is prime of his life, and yet gave himself up um, for us. Terrible torture, is what Miss Susan said. 
we're not accustomed to eyewitnessing that kind of thing, but those of wartime perhaps a little. But, you know, and Larry, maybe you can uh, correct me on this, but if I, if I understand it right, when David, from Psalm 22, mentioned these things happening, crucifixion was not something that had yet been invented. Is that... It was, a, it was a Roman thing that maybe started a few years before the Roman Empire, but um, this is something that that was predicted, and yet the world had not yet known this kind of um, this kind of extermination, this kind of of death, punishment for criminals. So, but a little over a thousand years before all this happened, David wrote specifically about these events. So Susan's saying that we we don't see as much punishment nowadays. I don't don't think of punishment. saying we're kind of a little bit flippant toward the idea of punishment being deserved for a crime. But certainly the ultimate crime is sin. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus is taking that punishment for us. reading something about the origins of crucifixion, perhaps or, um, originating in the Babylonian or Assyrian captivities, certainly have come to prominence by the time of Alexander the Great, but David wrote before all those events. So... Uh, saying that the, the priest of the Old Testament time was, was not sinless, so he had, to, he had to sprinkle that blood for himself, but Jesus did not. None of this was for himself. None of, he was completely uh, pure. Well, thank you for walking through some of these thoughts and uh, simply mention these for further study and, of course, for appreciation deeper appreciation for what the Lord uh, has done for us.